0: Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Today on Brand Story, Inc., we we welcome Mike McComaskey to the show. Mike has worked in and around college athletics for nearly 30 years, including nearly 20 years at the Big Ten Conference. While at the Big Ten, he oversaw IT and was a member of the television management team, Additionally, he was involved in implementing the technology behind college football's first instant replay system, design of and maintenance for the IT network and AV systems for the conference's new headquarters and meeting center in Rosemont, Illinois, when it opened in 2013, as well as research for and negotiation of the Big Ten media agreements in 2007 and 2017, as well as the integration of three new institutions to the Big Ten conference. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jay. It's great to talk to you.
0: Likewise. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for pretty much the duration of his span at the Big Ten Conference. Uh, in full disclosure, our company, Teamworks Media, worked with Big Ten for 20 years. So uh, got to know Mike and have always respected him. And, you know, we'll dig in here in a little bit. But as he delves into data science at the intersection of sports, technology, content, I thought it was a perfect guest, fresh off of the MIT Uh Sloan Analytics Conference to, to bring Mike on and kind of help us crystal ball a little bit. So, Mike, we just shared your bio of all your accomplishments and insights and in your tenure as Big Ten's Associate Commissioner of Technology. Help us connect the dots between your insights from within the conference and where you are taking your career in the data analytics field now.
1: Sure. There's a lot that I did um, with data at the Big Ten, kind of as you mentioned, some of that. Um, but there's always kind of been a pull for me uh, towards data. Um, it's funny, the, the first job out of... Um, umass uh, when i graduated from there before i actually got working college athletics was a uh, telephone interviewer for apt associates not the um the appliance company up in glenview (laughs) but a uh, it's a global research firm that has roots in uh, cambridge massachusetts um wasn't the most fun job but it was uh it was interesting work uh oftentimes kind of didn't end up in that path but it's always kind of stayed close to data um i worked uh Beyond what had mentioned before, I also worked uh, closely with, um, commissioner Delaney mm-hmm. on uh, his in-season reports to the CFP making, uh, the data case for conference teams, um, which did, uh, again, another full circle item provided me one of the coolest moments of my career when, um, mm. the first year of the CFP, um, uh, one of our liaisons uh, from the committee was a uh, Condi Rice mm. and, uh, the two of us uh, were the first two in, on one of the calls, and so I got to have a short, uh, pleasant chat with her, uh, which was kind of neat. Nice. But back kind of the main question, um, the, uh, the field of data science has been growing, and I d- kind of decided that data was a passion that I needed to follow and uh, have used the pandemic to um, get uh, work in my master's degree and uh, kind of add those t- necessary technical skills to uh, my domain knowledge in uh, college athletics.
0: Well, you were recently featured in an article on your master's degree project where you connected data science to the predictability of college football ratings, and you just mentioned the CFP and the college football playoff, so uh, this is obviously something that you've been connected with for a long time. But walk us through your thesis, what you found, and how this may become uh, the future of media company analysis.
1: Sure. Um, I'll apologize a little in advance here. It may get a little bit into the weeds, but I'll try to keep it as high level as possible. Um So this was the final project for a class to develop a a classifier model um, on a data set of our choice. And a classifier model is one built using a number of uh, uh, different uh, potential algorithms to find patterns in data and then use those patterns to predict whether or not a single uh, target variable will be uh, basically true or false Mm -hmm. uh, or one value or another. Um, So in this case, the target variable was whether games would fit into a certain predetermined range of uh, viewers um, versus trying to predict the specific number of viewers, which would be a a regression model. Mm -hmm. Um, I chose to predict um, whether a given game would fall between 1.2 and 5.8 million viewers. I don't want to get into a stats class, but there's Mm -hmm. reason why I picked those numbers. The 1.2 million, is the median number of viewers between 2015 and 2020. So
0: okay.
1: half of games were below that, half of games were above. Okay. Um, and 5.8 um, is actually two standard deviations above those math reasons to do that. But uh, basically that, that covers about 40% of games right there, that okay. 1.2 million to 5.8. When you look at a kind of a distribution, there's a lot of games that fit in there. And the games above that are you don't need a data science degree to uh, be able to predict that that's the Ohio state, Michigan's the Auburn, Alabama's the, the one versus two games. I mean, those are are easy enough to predict. This is trying to kind of take those games and say, uh, I don't know if it'd be good or or great, but is this a game that is really kind of going to return some viewership or is it just, um, A sub 1 million game Um, so um, I trained uh, a number different models using multiple algorithms um, and found that I was able to predict with 78.4 percent accuracy as to whether or not a game fit in that range so given that it was only about 40% um, of the full field that's a pretty good number Um, I took the model I created ran it again on an additional set of data, which I had, which was the 2021 season, which had played no part in the testing, so there was no way it would be skewed in any way, mm-hmm. and still ended up with an accuracy of 77.4%, which, wow. given that it's a new season, you, you each season obviously has its kind of own things, trends change, so, uh, so it, was, it was very happy that it had a strong predictive value, despite not really having that many uh, features to choose from um, it kind of going forward with it, you could add things like weather forecasts, betting lines, uh, social media sentiment, um, Mm -hmm. more statistical profiles as, as features, which would allow you to be able to kind of refine the model and, either getting to much smaller segments and try to predict into there or get to a full regression model where you're actually trying to pull a specific number, um, as to how many it's, if, if you get to regression, you're, you're not going to get necessarily near the kind of that, that 77% that I was talking about, but it, it depends on how much, um, how much data you can throw at it.
0: So a couple things there, Mike. First of all, I love the data scientists in you, not 77% or 78%, 78.4%. So <laughs> I love that. Nod to that. Okay, but let, now let's take it the next step here because, unfortunately, you know my love of Northwestern, which always seeps its way into any conversation, seemingly, especially when I'm talking to folks at the Big Ten. But as a uh, protective, you know, little engine that could fan who uh, has a very small alumni base... This, this my, my mind goes to places of this data and a, an element of the rich getting richer from a brand perspective and the less rich getting, you know, the poor getting poor. Meaning, um, if you look at this, right, and you, you're able to extract specific teams, which are going to rate higher, some logical, I'm sure, some um, probably surprising, how does it not incentivize media companies to just program the ones that are going through your models at um, you know it's almost like elevating those and rewarding those because they're going to be m- worth more money and therefore how does a team ever if it's like the chicken ev- chicken egg of exposure right if a Northwestern's not getting a primetime ESPN slot once in a while then it's impacting recruiting it's tougher to get people right blah 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 So I'm curious about your take of applying the math to the reality of brand.
1: Sure, I, I think you're you're absolutely right and I think if you look at programming histories, um, that's mostly kind of what's happened yeah. uh, through time already. Um, where I, I think something like this is helpful is that it, it might find a scenario where it would pull a northwestern game mm-hmm. because of the other data tied to it, who they're playing, what window um, you're looking at um, and some of the other information I was talking before, like wh- what the line on the game may be, what team rankings are. I mean, those, those types of things, it, it may make them take a look at mm-hmm. a, a Northwestern game and mm-hmm. say, um, by my own bias, I, I wouldn't necessarily have done that. Right. But looking at the numbers here, eh, it might be worth it to take a, uh, Take a shot. Take a shot on um, a Northwestern Purdue game mm-hmm. where they they have some of those elements there versus mm-hmm. um, an Ohio State Western Michigan
0: game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, let's ratchet that up, right? Because as most of the listeners know, media rights are the backbone of any league in any sports financial fortunes, right? It's become a multi-billion-dollar bet for mainstream sports media companies, as well as you know, an eight to nine-figure primary revenue stream for emerging sports. Uh, where are we, in your estimation, in terms of the sophistication of the precision? To your point of what the what you just talked about. Where are actual media networks, sports media networks, as it relates to predicting ratings and consumption and the values assigned to it?
1: I I think owning streaming outlets have changed the game for media companies in that they now have the same type of viewership data that the Comcasts of the world have had for years. Mm -hmm. Um, Where Comcast controlled the the box in your house, they knew everything about what you're watching. I mean, you've, we've had Nielsen rankings, but the ratings, but they're,
0: that's a whole nother podcast. You still
1: have, (laughs) exactly. I mean, some of those are still done with paper notebooks and it's just, it's, it is not um, that micro data that Mm -hmm. a a streaming service or a cable box can provide to you. So the the benefits um, as well that stream networks have is, they're able to experiment and see how that affects viewership. So they can start a game at 120 or 140 um and move things around yep. that the the ABCs of the world are locked into their windows. Yep. And so they don't know that maybe starting forty five minutes later is going to get you basically the equivalent of another rating point. Um and that um because of the the interest and some fans may want to see things, see the start and ends of games versus having um, everything tied at the same time. They don't want to flip from start here to start here to start here and then to end here. And so it gives things like that, allow them to experiment. Um, I I don't think um, that I I, I haven't specifically, specifically talk to any television programmers about it but i don't think i'm far off in stating that they um they have the data that they need to make really educated predictions as to how watched a particular sport or game will be mm-hmm. on a given platform i mean there's you always have the exceptions you can't foresee um right. let's say a, like a, a lightning delay uh, to a mm-hmm. football game pushes it into direct conflict with another event mm-hmm. um for the same school key injuries um but, I mean, even even with that, you say, like a, an ESPN Plus, they have just so much volume there yep. that they may even be able to model for things like that. Yeah. Um, so some of it is of low use because it is so close to the game start that right. um, there's. you may be able to deliver some different ads in-game uh, for that. But besides that, there's you don't have the same predictive value that some of the other data will give you.
0: Uh, before we go bigger picture here, just you sparked something Were were there any variables that you were able to pull out of your study that were surprising what I mean by that? Uh, you know, in layman's terms, just start time or gambling lines or other thematics that kind of emerged as, as things that had, um, somewhat significant impact.
1: Sure. So I, I did not include gambling lines. I just, I included that as a potential future, um, expansion to it. But, um, the the interesting thing was, I mean, certainly um, network matters kind of in in scale. Um, mm-hmm. The the um, ABC, Fox, CBS yep. kind of have their own thing, um, where an ESPN two is in a, a very different um, category, and in some ways that's a, a chicken or egg uh, as well because. They don't put the same games on the ESPN2 yeah. that they would put on an ABC. Um, but um, I, I think in some ways the, um, the window didn't matter as much as you might think it would um, as to what the overall rating was. And hmm. I, I think uh, Fox has kind of proven that with um, their big noon broadcasts mm-hmm. um, that they – they can get a big number at noon um, even with a lot of, of uh, competition out there where um, people might've put that in the um, in prime time uh, historically. Um, so it's, I, I think, um, I mean, rankings, the like team ranking mattered like whether a team was ranked uh, in the AP or CFP rankings uh, and, and how high mm-hmm. that, uh, that certainly affected. And then um, I, I didn't get into the which specific teams. I mean, the, the model kind of just basically took whether you were a member of ACC, Big Ten, Big Twelve, uh, Pac twelve, or SEC, whether you're a group of five or whether you're an FCS team, mm-hmm. um, and then what your your ranking was as well. Um, so it's for for the purpose of the model, Northwestern was treated the same as Ohio. State mm-hmm. uh, Alabama was treated the same as Kentucky, um, so the being an SEC team or a Big Ten team definitely was uh, good for for ratings. Mm-hmm. Being an FCS team was absolute poison. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense.
1: Not surprising, no. but um, no. but it, it, interesting just to see it uh, played out.
0: Well, good good news, your Minutemen are no longer FCS, right? Now they're back. <laughs> All right, so the number one value proposition for most brands and media entities in terms of future growth is the value of direct-to-consumer data, right? It's brought up almost on every other Brand Story, Inc. podcast, I'd say. And so with the evolution of smart TV, subscription services, and soon in-game gambling, the profile of consumers... In my estimation, will only continue to get more specialized. So, I'd love for you to walk us down the path of where this is going and how the value may shift from one entity to another, as opposed to, say, the guardians of the game like Facebook and Twitter, who kind of have those walled gardens. Sure,
1: yeah, I'm, I, I am not sure um, that you can emphasize this point too much. Um, th- there's nothing that's more valuable in uh, predicting uh, future consumer behavior. Having uh, rich data on those consumers, uh-huh. uh, the, the large data aggregators that you mentioned, the the Facebooks and Googles of the world, uh, they they're not always going to be um, a source of insights on those consumers for you um, going forward, uh, particularly with things like uh, GDPR in Europe, um, the the California privacy laws, and then in Apple uh, on its platforms, making it much harder to mm-hmm. collect data across a broad, uh, group of sites. Um, what isn't limited still is, and would be very difficult to limit is a company from knowing who its own customers are, uh, particularly if you have, um, them tied to a login because mm-hmm. of a paywall or, or purchases, um, that, and being able to know, uh, what they're consuming, when they're consuming, um, who they are, and then model on that data, I mean, is, is invaluable. I can't, and I can't so think that's... of a better day
0: to have this conversation. We're recording this on Selection Sunday 2022, and there will literally be millions of people logging into primarily one or two or three uh, sports media companies to get their brackets filled out, right? I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that exactly. data is case in point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, so how what excites you about where data science is going and how it will impact sports content, right? Connect the dots on how it may improve the value proposition for sports fans and their consumption.
1: Sure. I, I think probably one of the most exciting things that this allows is continued customization
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for fans, which definitely will help drive improved value. Um, I, I think I um, – well, I guess whether it kind of in broadcasts uh, with networks or leagues having their own media platforms or the, the teams, institutions having a wealth of new behavioral data due to d- digital ticketing, um, content mm-hmm. providers are going to have the hard evidence as to what drives interest for fans and what doesn't, um, and then can work to tailor that presentation Um i mean it's exciting for all sports but it really i think presents an opportunity for sports that have traditionally struggled to find an audience um mm-hmm. kind of imagine a team that has uh, precise data on when a fan entered or left the building for a game it could send that fan a short video package of highlights of the portions of the game that they might have missed because of a late arrival or early departure just to kind of keep them fully engaged with the team um you can experiment with additional video feeds uh, a stat centric feed uh, for the fan that's interested in that uh, a cleaner feed for the kind of the purist fan that just mm-hmm. wants to watch the game and they don't care about all the other stuff and i heard on one of your previous podcasts talking about the, the gambling feed i mean that's yep. um, once once they can figure out the the technology of making sure that the you're in real time because if, if you're not in real time gambling doesn't work um that, that that's that's an obvious uh, use of it um and, and i mean gambling is just is an area that, i mean that is all data and uh, the more that um the american market becomes understood and what is popular or not popular here uh, the more that those companies are going to be able to tailor their product uh, to the preferences of the market and as they all say it is an entertainment product not uh not something for uh making money
0: man you just so, sparked but... so many awesome things mike with that <laughs> i mean exactly i but i you know I'll, I'll go back just uh to the northwestern example since we're talking big 10 it's like uh, when I did a blog for Northwestern, it was very obvious how decentralized the fans were. Right, mm-hmm. I think of the 14 Big Ten teams, uh, Northwestern's or the institutions. I think Northwestern, you probably know, it's like 13th, 12th in terms of raw numbers of alumni in the Chicagoland area. Right, I mean, mm-hmm. just it's it's a math equation. And so, to your point, and we had this uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins head of content studio on like 50 episodes ago. And and he talked about this just like with that data, right. And collecting it uh, both digitally through subscriptions and other things. You start seeing these trends of like, Hey, you've got like, you know, European hockey players or people from Alaska who are, you know, kid from Alaska and like these micro targeting fan bases of Pittsburgh penguins, you know, a kid who grew up in California or wherever, right. Rhode Island places Mm -hmm. that are outside of that old school you know, stick a stick a fork in it in sixty mile radius, and that's who you market to. I feel like those days are so long gone, and that's what's exciting about this. Is you know, from a marketing perspective, but also from to your point, like that game experience, right? Like it seems like we're right upon having. I mean, ESPN already does it and has been doing it for years with the the mega casts and some of the big stuff. Yep. But I feel like we're not far away from you know, um, you know, a UMass. Uh, syracuse football game having you know 30 options of how to consume it and watch it right by camera angle by you know x's and o's by gambling feed by whatever you want home home radio telecast with latency figured out and so I mean those are the types of things that um i'm excited about and how far away do you think we are from that technologically I, I-
1: I mean, I, I think technologically, the, the, I mean, as ESPN has shown, the capacity is already there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cost thing, I think, more than any at the moment. And um, as they continue to uh, figure out ways to, to save money and to monetize uh, new content. Um, and and it, at the same time, it's also an experiment because the more you do that type of thing, the more you understand what different mm-hmm. viewers want to see mm-hmm. and, and you can tailor your main broadcast to that. I yep. mean, I'm sure that ESPN has taken many insights from its bigger cast as to how, what the engagement is for the coaches right. uh, broadcast versus watching just right. um, the, uh, the overhead camera. Right. Um,
0: and yeah, think about Nickelodeon, right. And their experiment mm-hmm. with the, the kids, telecast of the football game which was we all watched that and it was revolutionary but at the same time being like this is the biggest no-brainer of all time right like Mm -hmm. um and and those insights that you're able to glean from an entire new audience segments that you never even really considered before
1: well and i wouldn't be surprised if if the manning cast came from that coach's room um yep that same idea because it's it's very similar to uh to what they did there. It's just that they actually are putting it on a real network now versus All having right. to, to stream it.
0: So you recently attended the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Give us some of the top takeaways you came away with.
1: Sure. Um, there's, there's a lot of smart people there. Um, the uh, So I, I would say...
0: If you're saying that, that, it's kind of scaring me.
1: If you're... <laughs> um, I, I'd say that... Um, blockchain and nfts yep. are, are going to have great impact um what what exactly it'll be what form it'll take i, I can't say for now but there are are just way too many smart people that are exceptionally interested in them um I, I think right now is uh pretty close to what the um the kind of the 1999-2000 um web bubble was mm-hmm. for a lot of it that there, there's just People uh, trying to get rich quick Mm -hmm. and um, they don't have good um, business plans for it. But um, when when you hear about things that it can be used for, um, for having smart contracts or you you have an NFT that is tied to um, a a season ticket package um, for a consumer that you can go, I mean, there, there's a permanent record of it. Um, I mean, if they transfer it somewhere, Mm -hmm. you can, you can, you can take percentage on that. Um, you can follow where it is. You can, it can be an asset that they keep that you continue to reward them and provide them new content over time. It's, it's a, um, being able to communicate. I mean, it's not, it doesn't necessarily give you the full ability to, to track them, but it gives you a, uh, a communication ability to them that is kind of unlike anything that's existed in the past.
0: Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting that when I get into this conversations, I try to, it's, it's a little overwhelming, especially for those that, you know, kind of put their hands up when they hear NFT and I don't get it. And mm-hmm. like we've, we've dug in on that. I mean, one of the things that's really exciting for me about blockchain is, um, is the authentication for content creators, right? I'll just Absolutely. use a simple example. Yes. We've done at in a day job teamworks has done uh, half a dozen documentary films and mm-hmm. despite best efforts those films have actually had more viewership on youtube than they had on television and streaming right just illegally mm-hmm. um you know in the aggregate millions and you i go on there and it's just like they pop up all the time you know there's 500 that people just literally taking, plagiarizing, putting it up there and having 300,000 viewers of a documentary and you're just and to be able to have a system in place where um, you're okay with that happening because you're getting compensated for each view is is a you know, is a really I think it's a world that doesn't get talked about much, it's a really wonky inside baseball content creator type of a thing but that alone is huge and then to your point of like Season ticket holders again. Northwestern. I mean, they just went to the digital, right? To the data driven. So mm-hmm. you know, I got you know, a, a very uh, kind person gave me two front row seats in the Wilson Club, and the next thing I know, you know, I'm getting hit up by Northwestern. Uh, you know, <laughs> development. They come and meet me, and you know, which was yep. fantastic. Um, just to uh, to be able to know who's using what, where, and be able to see it, you know, it's kind of been the Holy grail. And so to your Mm point, I'm curious if there's, was there one thing you walked out of there with like, Oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that application. Like, were there any aha? I'm sure you had a lot of ahas, but was there one aha that kind of elevated more than others?
1: I, 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 I think, I think on those kind of that, that smart contract and the, the ability to, um, provide, um, continual, Benefits for—I mean—to to really kind of supercharge the value of your ticket or mm-hmm. your membership and alumni associate or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever you're, you're trying to do—that it's—it's it's just a new way of approaching that. That that tool hasn't been in the toolbox before, and some smart people are going to find great ways to um, to use
0: that so final work question before i get one personal one in and so my question for you is what advice do you have for brands and emerging media companies as it relates to their data strategies especially ones that i would say the majority that may not have the financial resources to have someone of your ilk on their staff at the beginning
1: sure i I think key um, is become stats literate um there's not a better time in history to learn uh, with all the free content available on the internet with podcast videos classes books articles Um, it's important if you're going to be using data to make decisions that you um, understand both the benefits and limitations I'll just give two quick examples a funny one first um, there's an episode of the office when uh,
0: (laughs) you're speaking my language now now you're speaking my language uh, is
1: driving and the GPS tells him to take a right and um, he Takes a right and drives right into a lake. Um, <laughs> second is um, most homeowners know Zillow and the yeah. mysterious Z value uh, that uses data science to predict uh, the resell value of the property. Um, cautionary tale with it is they, they used it for basically getting involved in flipping uh, and figuring out which houses were undervalued that they could add some value to and then to resell them. Uh, instead, they lost a uh, billion dollars over three and a half years because they didn't keep their models up to date wow. and uh, look at as the trends were going. I mean, there, there was issues with, and the market got soft, and they just kept buying houses at a um, wow. at, at a level that they couldn't sell them. Um, so, it's data is great, and you have a lot of smart data people there, but you have to. Um, you can't always be hunches because your, your competition is going to be using data as well. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to uh, you have to be smart and you have to do real world checks on it sometimes and say, does this really make sense? Um, and if it does, great. Um, if it doesn't, then sometimes it's good to, to walk away. Um, and, and then also keep all the data that you can. Um, don't worry about it being in perfect, perfect form. I mean, a lot of the time of a data scientist is spent kind of wrangling data into a form that's usable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, if, if you,
0: I'm feeling so think good, good about my Google sheets data, right now, I'm feeling really good. Yeah, about my I mean, Google it's, Sheets. <laughs> it's, um,
1: I mean, it's just a simple spreadsheet on stuff that you, you can, you can get insights from it over yep. time. I mean, yep. it just, it's, but just keep it just and keep it in, in some form and, uh, don't necessarily worry about it being the best form now i mean if, if you're architecting something going forward you obviously want to try to include as much as you can but mm-hmm. it's um you, you 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 can't have too much
0: data uh last question for you mike what are you reading for fun
1: uh not doing a ton of reading for fun at the moment A uh school reading but kind of one of the more interesting books um I've read recently uh, was um, called "The Big Nine: uh, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity" uh, by Amy Webb. Um, it's a little bit alarmist at times, mm-hmm. but it's um, kind of a it's a must-read, I think, for anyone looking into getting to be a uh, practitioner of artificial intelligence. It makes some great points about how the nature of most AI, AI which tends to be opaque, is uh, subject to the perspectives and biases of the creators of it or the Mm -hmm. data it was trained on, um, which can cement bad practices or cause damaging unintended consequences. And just one quick example of that is, um, I believe it was Amazon, uh, was using, um, an AI system to try to, uh, go through, um, hiring, um, to kind of automate a lot Mm -hmm. of their hiring and (laughs) ended up finding that it kept recommending, um, male candidates, Mm. um, over and over again, um, because they train the data on historical data where Mm. they were hiring mostly male candidates.
0: Mm.
1: So it's, um, you, you have to be very careful that you're not, um, committing to, uh, to your models biases, uh, from the real, from the human world. Um, because it's, it's really easy to do if, if you're not paying attention and, uh, that you and you have an opaque model that you don't know how things are being weighted
0: in it. Really good life, real world applications and and you know <laughs> cautionary tales there. Mike can't thank you enough. Mm-hmm. Mike, this is awesome. Could have gone on all day with you. I, I can't appreciate uh, you enough taking the time and the thoroughness to come to this uh, podcast to share your insights with us. And and we're looking forward to tracking your journey as being a flag-carrying member of kind of how data science impacts um, sports media. Thank you so much for being part of this.
1: Thanks, Jay. I really enjoyed
0: it. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.